Hello everybody, today is December the 17th, and I hope you are enjoying your Thursday, and if it's any other day other than the other than the day I stated, I hope you're enjoying that day, this day as well. I have a surprise for you. I am going to listen to, for the first time, an interview uh, and Patty LaBelle is in it. I wouldn't go, wasn't going to tell you who she was. I, I know you was going to learn from her voice who she was because it's very distinctive. She is not deceased. And the uh, video was done the third month, the 20th day of 1986. So listen with me and let's learn a little bit more about Patty LaBelle and what she has to say. I remember um, all of the girls at the time looking the same. We all had the same, I think we all went to the same um, underwear store <laughs> for the same hoops and crinolines, the slips with the T-strap dresses with the little low cut. Uh, we, they had one because it was Leslie. She was one, one person singing and uh, some of the other girls were one, but we were four, Sarah Nona. Myself and Cindy, Cindy and myself, just want to be correct and all that stuff. So we would have on four of the same dresses, but in different colors, with the starch slips, uh, with the tiaras on the hair, with the ankle bracelets, with the gloves, and with the pumps. So pumps were like this, actually, just a plain pump and uh, a, probably a, a white stocking or something that looked taggy. And, um, but with everything unimaginable, and the bouffant wigs, and everybody had the same flip. Remember that flip? The Shangri-Las used to wear that flip, <laughs> but that was their hair. <laughs> Some of those divas had hair, you know, so, <laughs> but we bought ours, and we put ours on our little heads every night, and made that little flip in the flat bang, and put our tiara on, and everybody wore the same sort of look, basically. And sometimes we would stretch out and wear um, lame gold, tight mermaid suits and show our curves. Now let me ask you about <clears throat> At some point, the Shangri-Las, the romance, started to get sexy, started to, to really begin to look like rock and roll stars. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, that, that really wasn't true. When did you start to get sexy? And what, why did you feel you could? We never got sexy, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> I mean, we always looked like matrons. <laughs> we just did. And, and we never wanted to look sexy. At least I didn't. And uh, they never expressed to me that they wanted to take that step either, Sarah, you know, or the other girls. We just um, wore four of a kind, basically, chiffon. And this, the most outrageous we got as far as being sexy was some blue chiffon dresses that dipped in the front and had little trails of fabric that flowed in the back. And um, that was sexy to us. But we never thought that we would have to show sex or or display that side. With the gold LeMay pants, maybe that might have looked sexy to people, but we weren't trying to uh, to give them any kind of a section. You think that was just true for <clears throat> women at the time? Everyone was supposed to be demure. It was the 
I don't know if they were supposed to be. I think it's just that women were afraid to take chances. I mean, I think if they took a chance and, and tried to be outrageous, if we did, I mean, we could only get a yes or no from the public or from the mirror, <laughs> you know, and then we would say, yes, we'll stay with this or we'll go back to Plainville. It's just that uh, women weren't very risque. They didn't take chances then. Even in Raw? Not even in Raw. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't take those chances. <laughs> okay. Now, <clears throat> at some point, the, the Motown stars showed up, the early 60s, 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 
uh, I was like eight months pregnant and I had, I had maternity pants made and they were so huge that we were rushing to get dressed and I ended up with two legs and one pant. You went on the stage that way? I went on until Sarah Nona started looking at me kind of strangely. And I one leg moving by itself, you know. It was just the third appendage going over here like that. I'd love to have seen that. Hey, tell me about the Chameleon album. You had something to do with a lot of the songs. Yes, I wrote six of the songs. And it's just about the different things that we've been through in the past. Uh... Oh, this is a bad interview, too. It's, they're talking so low. I don't know why. Let me see about this one. Special on NBC at 10 o'clock called, and they had a big meeting about this. Yeah, a conference. Yeah, a big conference of executives. And they said, why don't we call it the Patty LaBelle Show? And they said, hey, that's great. Would you welcome Miss Patty LaBelle? <laughs> it's only me. And I know what you've been through. I will be your friend. Lean on me for now. Got to pull you back up somehow.
You really just don't get into it at all, do you? You, you, reach, you reach down there and pull those notes out of wherever. Wherever. Yeah, you look like, you know, I've been on the show a long time. I've seen uh, thousands of performers. You seem to genuinely, every time you perform, enjoy being up there. I love to sing. Yeah. I love to rehearse. It shows. I love, I just love to sing. I know some singers will come up here. I can always tell when something is happening because all of a sudden you come down here in the afternoon when you run through with the band. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to cut this interview short, and I'm going to pick something, out, <clears throat> something else out, and I'm going to share it with you. Marilyn Monroe was born in Hollywood in 1926. That year, the stars the movie fans pay homage to are tempestuous Gloria Swanson, alluring Pola Negri. But in the studios behind the scenes, other women work at less glamorous jobs. One of these is a film cutter named Gladys Baker. On June the 1st, 1926, she gives birth to a baby girl whom she calls Norma Jean. Sometime after the birth of her daughter, Gladys Baker, who had been deserted by the father of the little girl, suffers a nervous breakdown and she's committed to a mental institution. The pretty child, now without a mother or a father, without any family, becomes a ward of the county of Los Angeles. It is early in the 1930s, and the United States is in the throes of a depression. Little Norma Jean spends most of her first 15 years being shuttled back and forth to a dozen foster homes. For a short time during those years, Norma Jean's mother is thought to be cured and she leaves the institution. She takes the little girl to watch Hollywood premieres. The two of them examine with awe the footprints of the mighty in the forecourt of Grauman's Chinese Theater. And when her mother must go back to the hospital, Norma Jean begins to weave her own fantasy that someday she will escape her loveless, lonely life and become a star, love, applauded like her favorites. The handsome, romantic Clark Gable, the vivacious, sophisticated Claudette Colbert, the stalwart, friendly Gary Cooper. But the star she loves the most is Jean Harlow. And when Jean Harlow dies at the age of only 26, 11-year-old Norma Jean Baker is inconsolable. In 1941, Norma Jean, now a pretty and very popular 15-year-old, graduates from junior high school. Her guardian decides that the young girl should marry the boy next door, a 21-year-old aircraft worker named James Dougherty. And so shortly after reaching her 16th birthday, Norma Jean becomes a Van Nuys, California housewife. World War II is underway, and Jim Dougherty goes off to sea in the Merchant Marine. His wife takes a job in a Burbank defense plant. In 1945, an army photographer doing a story about girls working on the home front 
takes this picture of Norma Jean. It catapults her into a career as a photographic model for the Blue Book Agency. The Blue Book Agency makes a film test of her. It's the first time she appears before a motion picture camera. She loves it. And she's happy that the agency finds it easy to sell her as the wholesome girl next door type. A new world is opened up for Norma Jean. She divorces her husband and devotes her full time to working at her newfound profession. She soon obtains assignments with top photographers like Andre Didienis for magazines like Family Circle and U.S. Camera. But the photographers tell her that there is much more money in glamour girl shots and cheesecake. And they are right. The photo on the cover of Laugh magazine attracts Howard Hughes, the same producer who discovered Gene Harlow. His interest, in turn, induces one of his competitors, 20th Century Fox, to sign Norma Jean Baker to a movie contract. Norma Jean is ecstatic. Her own fantasy have begun to come true. The studio decrees first that she must have a new name. They call her Marilyn Monroe. But with the exception of two walk-ons, the only way they use her is for publicity shots. After just one year, in 1947, they drop her. She goes back to modeling, but she continues her dramatic lessons. In these pictures, shot in 1948, she expresses peace, sorrow, and death. In that same year, her perseverance wins her a second chance at a movie contract, this time at Columbia Pictures. She's 22 now, and she's given her first promising movie role, the second lead in a musical called Ladies of the Chorus, in which she plays a young burlesque queen. All right, that'll do it for Marilyn Monroe. I was, I'm not that interested in Marilyn Monroe. Excuse me, uh, we're going to end it right there, okay? You know when she was born and everything, and she is deceased. I don't know, I might let you listen to a little bit more. You want to listen to some more? I'm going to let you listen to a tad bit, no. You'll be sure to send this right away, won't you? Wouldn't you rather deliver it in person? No, thanks, I... Martin. Yes. The high point of the film for Marilyn is a chance to perform a solo song and dance routine. But again, the movie moguls see little promise in Marilyn Monroe, and they fail to renew her contract. But Marilyn has been raised on a steady diet of rejection. She swallows her disappointment and goes to work with a dramatic coach. 
supporting herself with occasional modeling jobs and unemployment insurance. She poses for calendars for artists like Earl Moran and photographers like Tom Kelly. She develops a sure instinct for publicity. She feels it's the best way to attract the Hollywood producers. And so when a dazzling blonde is needed to dress up a public occasion, Marilyn is there. She's photographed, and what's more, she enjoys it. In 1950, she signs a new contract with a studio that dropped... dropped her just three years before 20th Century Fox. It's the time of the Korean War. And just as soldiers a decade before had worshipped Betty Grable, now suddenly, Marilyn Monroe becomes the GI's pinup queen. In 1952, Marilyn's new fame and her acting prowess result in her being starred with Joseph Cotton in a film called Niagara. To celebrate Marilyn's new star status, Ray Anthony throws an unmistakably Hollywood party in her honor. In July of 1953, Marilyn returns to the forecourt of Grauman's Chinese Theater, where she and her mother used to come 20 years before. Now she has played the title role in the hit picture, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, with Jane Russell. The little girl who once looked wistfully at Hollywood from the outside has now landed on the inside with both hands and feet. In 1954, at the age of 27, she marries one of America's greatest baseball heroes, Joe DiMaggio. He is a man from a large, friendly family. And Marilyn looks forward to the warm kind of family relationships she had never known as a child. Marilyn is no longer a lonely, insecure girl, but a glamorous and self-assured celebrity. But there's a companion on their honeymoon trip to Tokyo, her overwhelming popularity. Even in Japan, where baseball heroes are revered, the dazzling fame of Marilyn Monroe eclipses that of her celebrated husband, The U.S. Army asks Marilyn to fly to Korea to entertain the troops. Although she's still on her honeymoon, she will not deny this request. Joe stays behind in Tokyo, while Marilyn goes over to Korea and puts on ten shows. In two days, she appears before 100,000 soldiers and Marines. She braves the freezing winter weather in a cocktail dress because she knows this is the Marilyn Monroe her GI fans want to see.
returns to Hollywood in March, just in time for the 1954 Photo Play Awards. Marilyn Monroe, it gives me the greatest pleasure to present the famous Photo Play Magazine Gold Medal Award as the selection of all of the moviegoers of America who have voted you the most popular actress of the year. My congratulations. Thank you, Mr. Sims. I want to thank the editors of Photoplay Magazine and all of the public. I thank you very much. In the summer of 1954, Marilyn is signed a star in the seven-year itch, and her appearance in New York for location shots stops traffic. Marilyn, standing over a subway grating, attracts a crowd of 4,000 New Yorkers at 3 o'clock in the morning. This shot will become almost as famous as her calendar picture. When the film opens in New York, the man and woman on the street are asked for their reactions. Oh, I think it's terrific. Well, it's pretty vulgar, if you ask me. How so? Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's very nice. Very nice. Some girl. You like that, huh? Oh, yeah. I think it's very nice, but I'd rather it were me. I said, what has Marilyn Monroe got that a million other women have and prefer not to show? I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Marilyn's marriage to Joe DiMaggio lasts less than 10 months. In court, she tearfully tells the judge that she had failed to find the warmth, affection, and understanding that she had sought. But there are those who say the marriage was bound to fail, because by now, Marilyn is too much a captive of her career. And she's having career trouble. She wants greater independence in selecting her own stories and directors. And she wants more money. All right, enough about Marilyn Monroe. I'm going to move on, and I'm going to pick you out something to listen to while I find me something else to listen to and look at. <clears throat> Let's see. How about listening to the rest of Miss Patty LaBelle? And you see maybe 30, 40, 50 people. Very, very rare uh, that people it's come nice in. It's nice when I come here to rehearse yeah. because a lot of people do come and they appreciate our rehearsals. That's yeah. nice. We thank you for that too. Yeah. Thank you. Have you always, have you always sung in this style? I mean, is this what you, when you were I, young, who, who did you listen to? I listened to Dakota State and uh, yeah. Gloria Lynn and uh, Nina Simone, but right. I didn't try to sound like anyone. Yeah. I just listened to that music when I was coming up and I am. Um, basically listened to my animals, my cat and my dog, and got some sounds from them. Yeah. Oh, come on. No, they were, no those, they, they were my friends, the cats and dogs, and, and those three records. You sing in church choir? Yes. Gospel? Because that's, that's a wonderful gospel, gospel choir, gospel, yes. gospel choir feeling. Baptist church, yes. Yeah, we're about for all. Philadelphia? That's my hometown. Yeah. Good old Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. Philadelphia. Did you always realize you had a strong, a really strong voice? Because some people, unless you use the instrument right, that puts a lot of strain on it if somebody sang at that well, amplitude. It's a, I always listen to my father sing around the house, and I, I did play with cats and dogs. They yeah. were my only friends, and I would go in the mirror and sing in front of the mirror to see what kind of talent I was going to end up. 
I knew it wasn't going to be a dancer right. or anything else or a fashion model. And when I opened my mouth, I knew it had to be a singer because they would always give me the bark of approval, the dogwood. <laughs> and I'm, I'm serious. So these are the people that I've, people, these are. I mean, if you got to react. Pat LaBelle to cut her stuff out. <laughs> this was this uh, interview with uh, Johnny Carson. It was in, uh, don't say when it was, it had to be in the 80s because she's got that high hair on her head. If I got a reaction from the dog or the cat, I knew I was cool, so <laughs> my dog Bambi would give me the bark of approval when the cat would say a meow and I knew I was cool. Your dog Bambi. Bambi and Skippy was the cat. Ah. Skippy committed suicide and Bambi got run over by a car. Because I used Excuse to... me one second. I'm Wait, serious. No. <laughs> well, see, you ask me. me questions and I have to Skippy tell you. Skippy committed suicide. Skippy Su was a, a yellow cat. You know they have sewers in Philly where the, you know where the stuff goes. Sure. Skippy went in the sewer. I don't know if it was by accident or what, but I used to put makeup and scarves and stuff on the cat to make him up and talk to him like they were real people. I think they got tired of the makeup, the dog yeah. got hit by a car, and Skippy committed suicide. Oh. But, like in my special, we talk about me, my childhood from my childhood to now, and I, I swear to you, I had animals as friends and butterflies. You know, as you're talking about... Butterflies, I would capture them in jars. As you're talking about that, there's a wonderful story, and I've got, I've got to tell it here what? about... There's a fellow who apparently... the story. I don't know whether it's apocryphal or really happened, but it's funny. A fellow went to visit a friend of his in New York, Mm -hmm. And he lived in a high-rise, like 60 stories up. And he had a little dog. And the fellow says, look, I'm going to go in and, and get dressed. Why don't you play with the dog? And so the fellow picked up, and he has a little rubber ball. And the well, I'm not going to allow him to finish because you have to help sponsor this podcast. And uh, I will pick up where it was left off. I have it number marked and everything, so... You go ahead and do that, and I'll get back with you in another episode of it. Another segment, another episode, or whatever, you know. But uh, I know you want to he hear the conclusion of it, but this is one of the tactics that I, I learned about, uh, you know, advertising in a trailer. And, you know, maybe it worked, maybe it won't. Maybe you'll be back, maybe you won't. But guess what? I am going to listen to it later. Or should I listen to it now? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? I think you want to listen to the rest. Because you are a Patti LaBelle fan. <laughs> And who knew? And who knew? <laughs> who knew Patty Labelle used to do stuff like that? I mean, come on. <laughs> who knew it? Who knew it? Who knew it? Yeah, we'll pick up later on it. Okay. All right. Toodaloo. All right, ladies and gentlemen. How about sending me a message? All you have to do is just press that button and look at the option to record your voice and send me a message, and I will get it. Just send me a message. Let me know what I can improve. Let me know uh, what you like, what you don't like, um, what to include, and I will consider it. Uh, also, it would be nice if you uh, share this podcast 
with your friends if you would like or sponsor donate it's your choice but now i am going to find someone else to listen to but i have a song here for you that i want to share uh i don't have anything just off the top of my head that i want to listen to right now Mm. let's see but we do have uh, a lot of choices i have a lot of choices here too many too many too many too many Uh, let's see if i have a song on my on my head Now that I 
that's that was phenomenal. That was nice. That was nice. I set that to the side. You already know who that is. That is Mr. Lewis. Lewis Armstrong. That's right. Mac the Knife. And I have right here another little gift for you. It is Christmas. And I would like to play it now. And all you have to do is just listen. This is my first time listening. And it will be yours too. If not, then... Send me a message and let me know if you enjoyed it. Hey, Mr. Brown. Welcome. <laughs> Come sit for half a second. James, people are going to wonder why we didn't play the last record, I Can't Stand It When You Touch Me. Why, why, why can't you do a recording lip synchronization of that? Well, I get my breath. It was on impulse, you know. We kind of got a groove going. And I started coming in with a little, little every now and then, little hip things we were saying, you know, a lot of slang words that the cats used on the corner and, and the kids used at the, the soda pounds and so forth, you know. And it's kind of hard to, you can't do it back over again. You can never you know? do it twice the same way. That's right. You can only do it live and it still won't be the same way. All right, I tell you what I want to do. We could sit here for about three quarters of an hour and reminisce with this man on records that he's made, but I want to play you what they call the Soul National Anthem. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the records you've made and we'll ask you to sing again after you catch your breath. See if you recognize this song. You play a little bit of it, Eddie? When did you make that record? 1956. 56? <laughs> Couldn't be that long ago. Yeah, it's been a long time, about 12 years. How many times have you sung it? I had to, I had to pause it. <clears throat> this is American Bandstand 1968 interview with James Brown. He mentioned 1958, so that's why I had to let you know that this is a 1968 original interview. <laughs> you got me. I'm several thousand. Oh, more than that, I say um, ten thousand times, I guess. Well, you know, we were talking before. Bobby Darren every night has to sing Mac the Knife. You got to right. sing that one. Yes. I'm gonna play another one for a second. I'll ask you a question about this one. See if you remember this one. Now, what was the story? Why'd you make that record? Well, uh, during that time, I, I needed a hit record very bad, and uh, I honestly think I said, I said, "Well, you know, Papa should get a brand new bag, you know." And this, we gotta come up with a title, and then I start to write, you know, and got a little story together, and, and it was together. Do you write most of your own songs? Yes. Uh, and arrange them. Right. How many musical instruments do you play? About eight. Impossible. Listen to this one. See if you remember this one. I feel good. That was done in the movie, wasn't it? Yes, we did a ski party along with Frank Avalon, Brian Craig. You gonna be a movie star one of these days? Well, uh, we're making a lot of plans on it. I hope so. I hope I'll be able to do my last story. I think James probably it would be the, the, the James Brown story's got to be one of the biggest winners of all time. Now, we've reminisced, times running out, everybody's getting very nervous. May I suggest that we do the commercials, let James catch his breath, and then we'll do the second song. Is that everybody? Is that okay with everybody? Yeah, that's okay. All right, James, you, that's all right. we'll join you over there in a half a second, okay? Just hang in there. Don't run away. Yeah, that's all right. Ooh, they, they, it was in color, too. Anyways, uh, whoo, oh boy, this one right here is, uh, just looking at this man while he performed gives me the giggles, and I have to put him on again later, uh, talking about Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world.
<clears throat> let's let let's listen to this a minute. Well, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Take that. Out. Let me put something on for you to listen to. Oh, this guy here, he's still living. This this guy here, RuPaul. Don't you know RuPaul is um he's on the what show? Let's see what show he's on. New RuPaul is on uh, the Arsenio Hall show. I've seen this before. Premieres Monday at 9 on Logo. Take a look. What's what's going on? I will show you versatility when Santino wins a sewing competition and Passage wears a turtleneck. But don't be scared. There's tears as well as fears. I've given up everything in my life to be a drag queen. You have overcome that. And I'm so proud to see it. I'm so proud to see it. Please welcome everybody's favorite supermodel. You better work. If you are a RuPaul fan, if you are a RuPaul fan and <clears throat> want to know more about RuPaul, you'll stay tuned. But right now, I want to know more about um, Arsenio Hall. I don't know much about Arsenio Hall. The only thing I know is he played in that movie, uh, Harlem Nights. So let's find out a bit more about Arsenio Hall. Mm, Arsenio Hall. This Anchor app, it does not have a pause button. They should add one. The only thing that they have is an edit button. And I do not like to edit. I like to pause it and then resume after that. It does not have a pause button. So maybe they'll work that in. Then it'll be a more enjoyable app. Arsenio Hall interview. Arsenio Hall. Oh, let's see. I want his bio. Let's get his bio. Hmm. All right, here we go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, go grab you some hot chocolate, coffee, water, beer, whatever you want as a as a drink. And I'm going to lay here and listen, and you do the same. Let's see what's up. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing. Okay, here we go. Arsenio Hall really was a groundbreaker in American TV. He was the first late night black TV host that really owned the genre. 
born February 12, 1956, in Cleveland, Ohio, Arsenio Hall began his career as a stand-up comic. And in 1984, he became the announcer and sidekick to Alan Thicke on the talk show Thick of the Night. I think what made Arsenio special is that he was a funny guy, but he was also a nice guy. A lot of male comics at that time were like angry and, and kind of spouting off kind of this angry guy comedy. But he was a nice guy making funny jokes. After Joan Rivers left her position as host of Fox TV's The Late Show in 1987, Arsenio Hall made his mark as her successful replacement. Arsenio is lovable when you watch him on TV, but he's also lovable in person. His smile is infectious and he's non-threatening. In 1988, Hall co-starred with Eddie Murphy in the box office hit Coming to America. And the next year, he launched The Arsenio Hall Show as the first African-American late-night talk show host. The thing that I did is, is, I've said this many times, instead of going after Carson, I went after everything he leaves over. The people that watch Johnny, I went after their kids. And uh, instead of competing with them, I just tried to find my own niche. When you think of Arsenio Hall, you think of... <laughs> as the youngest, hippest talk show host on television, Hall became famous for his fist-pumping dog pound and his range of talented musical guests, including Bill Clinton, RuPaul, and Magic Johnson. Arsenio Hall really broke through in late night TV because he wasn't interested in having um, the established artist. What he was interested in was bringing the up-and-comers, the groundbreaking people, onto TV. Hall's show received two nominations for primetime Emmys. And in 1990, Hall won the People's Choice Award for Favorite Late Night Talk Show Host and also earned a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The other talk shows at that particular time, I think were probably still more in the wheelhouse of stodgy and very white. And this has become a much more multicultural society now. And people like Arsenio, shows like that, help usher in what we're seeing right now on TV and even on radio and even in dating. After leaving his talk show in 1994, Hall appeared on several television shows and won Donald Trump's Celebrity Apprentice in 2012. The following year, Hall made his television talk show comeback with his own syndicated late night show. It can be really hard to recreate the magic of a show that was a breakout hit, and that's exactly what the Arsenio Hall show was in the 90s. But he still got all that charm and talent, so I don't see any reason why he can't be a success today. All right, it wasn't much, but I guess he didn't do much. <laughs> he sure has got a funny head. He got a nerd to wear a flat top. Anyway, he has a marvelous he he has a marvelous smile or whatever. Like like they say he the first black uh, uh, sh uh show host or whatever. All right, let me pick me something else out. I didn't. True story. Why Arsenio really ended his? I really don't care. I know. I know you're interested in this.
Katie. Hi, Katie. What's wrong? <laughs> I'm like just far in front of the TV every night watching you.
inspirations in my life, I always mention Johnny Carson and Richard Pryor, and I never failed to put this man's name in the group. Since 1970, many of us have ridden the Soul Train on a weekly basis. And during the Soul Train's 20 years on the air, it's had one engineer. You can always bet your money he's a stone gas honey, Mr. Don Cornelius. found out I get I got uh at least ten to fifteen listeners right now. I only have two. <laughs> One of them might be just myself. <laughs> but anyway it don't matter. <laughs> uh I'm gonna see how this thing works. My uh this supposed to be monetized but I don't see any money coming in right now. That's why I'm not uh pressing it, you know, I'm not pressing it, you know, and everything, so, you got to show me the money, I got to see the money first. Peace, blessings, and love, family, this is Elder Rasan Shakur, out of New Orleans, Louisiana, coming to you with another great and informative video, peace, blessings, and love to all the melanated family, mankind. But baby, this video gonna be about the sister called Tisha Campbell. Used to play on with Martin and played in the Hollywood a lot of movies about 30 years. I was uh, looking at an article where when she got the boats, she only had seven dollars in her bank account. And it's reported that she made over 15, maybe $20 million in her lifetime. But she was married to some dude named, uh, 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 I can't think of her, her husband's name right now. But uh, there's allegations he took all the money after the, the votes. You know, when you got a, 
turn a cow. Maybe that's, that's what happened. I don't know how you lose that kind of money. But my advice, I don't care who you're married to. You better put something on the side for yourself in case something go wrong. Because that's what I think went wrong. Somebody took all the money. You know, I don't know, she in Hollywood. Y'all let me know how y'all feel about this situation. It's kind of sad, because I, I used to like to watch Martin, especially her, she played some good parts, you know. She was a real good actress. I can't believe that's, you know, oh, she she got his left, left in her bank account after her divorce. Seven dollars. Man, out of millions, from rags to riches, and riches to rags. <laughs> Sometimes it happens that way, family. Sometimes it happens that way. That's why you must, whether you're male or female, whether you're married or turn account, you know, you're asking for trouble. So once bad days come, <laughs> But y'all let me know how y'all feel about it. I would love to hear your comments, your thoughts on Tisha, Tasha Campbell. I think I'm pronouncing it right. And uh, y'all let me know about the situation. Maybe y'all can give me uh, enough information maybe to come back later with an update. Peace and blessings. Put up the likes and shares. And stay tuned for the next video or live stream. When I when I seen that coming coming through YouTube, I thought somebody that knew <laughs> you be for laughing. Somebody that knew something about something had something to say. But when I seen his ass pop up there, I was so I was disappointed. But I said, no, let me see what he got to say because I hadn't seen the video before. Um. It's, the title of it is Tisha Campbell left with $7 after divorce. And I'll put in the description if I keep it who put this uh, live out or so-called video out. And everything. I can't pronounce the name. But anyway. Oh my goodness. Here's another one. The truth is out about Martha and Snoop. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Let's see what's going on with this. Is there a TV pairing? Mm -mm. No commercial. No. And Martha Stewart? There's a lot. Is there a TV pairing that's been more unexpectedly delightful than Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart? There's a lot fans already know about the pair, but there are still many facts to discover about their relationship. The truth about Martha and Snoop is out. Keep on watching to learn all about it. Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg first met when he appeared on the Martha Stewart Show in 2008. The quirky chemistry fans would come to know and love on potluck dinners was on full display even then, as Martha tasked him with peeling potatoes. Naturally, she had to tell him he was doing it wrong. Just the skin, look. This just peeled. Who gives a damn? I thought they were sleep, sleeping and snoop, sleeping, snooping and sleeping around. I, and she's trying to teach him how to cook. Who gives a damn? And then he probably kissed her, kissed her somewhere. Who knows? That's what I want to hear about. These, I mean, this, this, this clickbait. That's why I don't fool with, with all this old 
new shit. I like to get to the, uh, excuse my French, I like to get to uh, the good stuff, you know, the interviews, the good stuff, the real stuff, the news, not the tease. I hate to be teased. Either you know or you don't know. Let me find something else that I hadn't seen yet. Somebody that I don't mind learning about or like. Somebody with some sense. Let me see. There's a lot of stuff on this, huh? Just like I say, if you have any requests, leave it in the uh, leave it in a message. Speak clearly, and I will definitely, definitely look it up. See if it's out there. If not, I might have to put in an order for it. That if that's if it's uh that that if it's uh. That if it is a that if it's uh what's the word I'm looking for um it ain't necessary, but it, that that if it's uh interesting, yeah, interesting because a lot of stuff you know, you like I don't like, and uh, I want to know what's up with Freddie Jackson. He is still living. I don't know too much about him. Let's see. Let's see. He got some of the baddest music that was ever out there. Mm-mm-mm. You new cats don't know nothing about that. But us but us uh older older, more distinguished, more enthused people know. Freddie Jackson Bio. I think I say I think I let me see what it says here. Please keep Freddie Jackson in your prayers. <laughs> See what I mean? See, listen. It says, please keep Freddie Jackson in your prayers. He suffers from unknown. And then just seeing that right there make you think he, the man is dead, but he's not dead. Okay, let's look at his interview. Let's let's look at Freddie Jackson's interview. Let's listen to it. You, I'm gonna I'm gonna listen, and you're gonna listen. Okay. Okay. Let's see here. Testing, testing, one, two, three. I need you to do me a favor and ask whoever's in these rooms to give me five minutes because we're going to be taping. Sure. Well, my name is Freddie Jackson. I just want to give you a little insight into my life. Um, a real black artist. Um, 
being born and raised in New York City all of my life. Um, my career started singing in church as a kid. I was I was discovered by a wonderful lady by the name of Miss Melba Moore who discovered me in the club. And Stop it right there. Melba Moore is great. She's living. She's on Instagram. And don't you know Instagram told me uh, that Melba Moore was going live. As soon as I got there, she, she wouldn't live. Maybe she didn't have enough to join her live, but I was there. Next thing I know, she's not live. See, that's why I cut off my no notifications for Instagram. Because every time I get a notification, nobody's live. And I know that I don't wait too late. And I know I have my uh, sound up to get the sound to let me know if anybody's going live. So I have my notification turned off. But Freddie Jackson's, let me tell you something about this. This is Freddie Jackson's 2007 interview. That's right. And uh, let's listen and see what he has to say. He seems like, I don't know much about him. I do know he got some good music. And I'm going to listen to it in a few minutes. Yes, I'm going to do a segment with just music and everything when these donations start coming in good. And stuff. Let's start it over. Testing, testing, one, two, three. I need you to do me a favor and ask sure. whoever's in these rooms to give me five minutes because we're going to be taping. Sure. Well, my name is Freddie Jackson. I just want to give you a little insight into my life. Um, a real black artist, um, being born and raised in New York City all of my life. Um, my career started singing in church as a kid. I was I was discovered by a wonderful lady by the name of Miss Melba Moore, who discovered me in a club. And of course, you know, um, going back and forth to different theaters like the Apollo Theater on 125th Street, uh, and learning so much about the stage from people like Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, the Jackson Five, when they had their original real noses, uh, <laughs> people such as that, and the love of music was always my life and still is the center of my joy and my love. And uh, I'm just really excited to be able to, a dream that I always had, well, I'm one of the millions that the dream came true. That's awesome. You can move around, feel free to um, So, what, you go that far, back that far, Otis Redding? Well, no, I didn't sing background for Otis Redding, but I was just one of the guys who was sitting in the audience when Otis Redding was on stage performing. And I got a chance to see what real, showmanship and hard work was made of. Otis Redding during the day used to do three shows a day at the Apollo Theater and that was just for 90 cents, guys, let me tell you. But um, I got a chance to see what it was for a real, a real artist to perform and to give their all in all. And to this day on the stage, what I do is I think I emulate some of that. Um, I love working hard and love people seeing me sweat. I like giving them the real stuff, not like a lot of the new Jackson. I'm gonna have to stop it right there because I got a song that popped in my head. I'm gonna have to come back to this interview. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to come back to it. A song kept popped in my head. I got to hear it. Whenever that happens, I got to hear it. I don't know. I just got to hear it. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed.
and I just want to give you a little insight into my life. Um, a real black artist, um, being born and raised in New York City all of my life. Um, my career started singing in church as a kid. I was, I was discovered by a wonderful lady by the name of Miss Melba Moore who discovered me in a club. And of course, you know, um, going back and forth to different theaters like the Apollo Theater on 125th Street uh, and learning so much about the stage from people like Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, the Jackson Five when they had their original real noses, uh, people such as that and the love of music was always my life and still is the center of my joy and my love and uh, I'm just really excited to be able to, a dream that I always had, well I'm one of the millions that the dream came true. That's awesome. You move around, feel free to move around. Um, so, what, you go that far, back that far, Otis Redding? Well, no, I didn't sing background for Otis Redding, but I was just one of the guys who was sitting in the audience when Otis Redding was on stage performing. And I got a chance to see what real showmanship and hard work was made of. Otis Redding, during the day, used to do three shows a day at the Apollo Theater, and that was just for 90 cents, guys, let me tell you. But, um... 
I got a chance to see what it was for a real, a real artist to perform and to give their all in all. And to this day on the stage, what I do is I think I emulate some of that. Um, I love working hard and love people seeing me sweat. I like giving them the real stuff, not like a lot of the new jacks today, and everything is in track. Well, my stuff is all raw, real bad, no stuff backstage. It's all natural and real, and I think that's what an audience likes to hear and a like to see. That's awesome. So you must have performed at the Apollo many times. Well, I performed at the Apollo, uh, not during amateur night then, there was amateur night, but I was always a little ham, and I was afraid to be booed. <laughs> the church kind of like got me used to being applauded for it when I got finished. So I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to Apollo to sing, you know, and be booed. And so I never did uh, amateur night. But when my first album came out, I did do the Apollo Theater uh, New Year's Eve, and I was still afraid because uh, I know they had booed quite a few um, successful artists at the Apollo Theater. So I still felt that I had to be on my P's and Q's while I was there. So um, I did get a chance to sing at the Apollo Theater. Awesome. And so talk about the first time you heard your voice on the radio. What, what was that like? The first time I heard myself on the radio, I went and I cut the radio down. It kind of scared me, you know. Although I had heard myself by singing background, uh, because I'd sing background for certain people like um, uh, Evelyn Champagne King, uh, Melba Moore. Um, I, I sing a lot of um, Glenn Jones. Uh, I sing background on Glenn Jones Show Me. That's me doing the background. Uh, I was uh, also working with Harry Belafonte. But when I first heard me solo, uh, I went out of the kitchen and I cut my little ghetto blaster down. <laughs> uh, but then I got used to it, so I used to turn it up higher and higher. But it was a thrill for me. But it was very overwhelming. Very overwhelming. That it would have been Rock Me Tonight, 1984, for old time's sake. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get it, I couldn't stop listening to that record because it was on every radio station all over the world all day long. So Rock Me Tonight, um, it kind of prepared me for being able to listen and hear myself a lot. And that was like one of six number ones in a row? Uh, yeah, I've had 11 number one records in my career. And uh, off of that album, the Rock Tonight album, I think I may have had three. It could be four number one records. I know one of my uh, records replaced itself. I had a number one record, and then I had a number two record, but my number two record went to number one. And that was a, something that had never happened, that had happened, but only to Sarah Vaughn. I was the second artist to ever replace uh, that, that feat that Sarah Vaughn had done. So it was Sarah Vaughn had a number one and a number two, and then Freddie Jackson was second. So I am in the book of history. So what, what, how, do you, how do you explain a phenomenon like that? I mean, did you know when you were making that record that it was kind of... I had no idea what I was doing when I was recording Rock Me Tonight. Uh, I was discovered by Melvin Moore, and they put me in the studio to record this album. I recorded the album, and I had no idea actually what it meant for me to have a number one record at all. I was in London at the time. My manager called me and said, sit down, you got a number one record. And I said to him, that's nice. He said, are you crazy? Juice was yelling and screaming, but I didn't know what it meant to have a number one record. Well, here, twenty some odd years later, um, I could. No, no, I, could, I can't say that I, I need a number one record because I know what it is. I have enough number one records to lend people. To be honest with you, and not being cocky, but um, 
it would be nice to have another one of those again, but uh, I know the feeling and I know the power of a number one record. That's awesome. So um, a lot of people like are trying to catch up to Freddie Jackson. What have you been up to? Well, right now I have a new album out. It's called Transition. I've had two top ten singles off of it. I'm on my third single now. The title of the album, Transition. Uh, as well as uh, On the Road, I'm getting ready to go to Turks and Caicos. I'm going to go to Johannesburg for the first time in my life, South Africa, which to me is almost like going home. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing that. Turks, uh, Turkey, I'm on the road uh, doing wonderful shows myself, Stephanie Mills, Gina Bell. Uh, I performed in New York City for the first time, although I'm in New York City. I haven't performed in New York City in over six or seven years and so that was a thrill for me i'm in philadelphia getting ready to do a show myself and miss regina bell which is my sweetheart she's celebrating all right they have it uh they got it right here they, they they put a they got a little pause in it on the on youtube and uh what i need for you to do is when you go to your YouTube again, go to your followers, the people that you are following, your subscribers is what they call it, <clears throat> and see and go through all of them and make sure you remember that you press the button and the bell or or just the button to, to have them send you notification when that person comes on or comes on live or either just downloads the video because uh, sometimes I don't remember all the people who I subscribe to and my eyes are, are going from side to side and around in a circle and stuff but anyway you make sure you make sure those people are under your list that you subscribe to and not only that, if you don't listen to them or something like that, you can get rid of them. Or you put them out under a playlist like I do that says unsubscribed. That way I can go to them and look them, go to that playlist and go to them without being subscribed. Yes, 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 yes. I'd have to do it like that because a lot of them I can't stand. My phone going off and it just be like a thirty second or an hour, a thirty second or a minute and fifteen minute, minute and twenty minute uh, video or something like that about nothing. But uh, I didn't cut Freddie Jackson off. What what happened was I got a pause on my phone, showing me some mess. I got like a like a advertisement, but it wasn't in the video. So, you know, they'll they'll do stuff like that to irritate you and whatnot. And you know, they got this thing where you can get uh you can pay for uh non interruptions and shit stuff like that. Excuse my friend. I was almost ready to curse. Yeah, they got it where you got you can pay for non interruptions. But I'm not gonna do that because I look at it like this, uh they gonna interrupt you the other way. Like what happened when you was listening to the to the video, I had it one time, but it's not it's really not worth it. But I think I forget how much it costs, but it's 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 really not worth it. But anyway, uh, let me get through uh, listening to uh, Freddie Jackson if they let me listen to him.
He talking so fast. I want to know what's up to date with him and everything. I have to look it up and see, but uh, those kind of people staying out the limelight. I know the coronavirus is out and everything. It's hard for the ones that are well known right now to come to the to the front of the stage, and uh, the ones that you know that what I'm doing, you know, hey, priceless, you know, because you wouldn't you wouldn't know what's going on with them, or you wouldn't know about them unless I unless I report it. So you need to do what you gotta do before I stop letting you listen and everything. Because a lot of bullshit out there and you know it and I know it too. But let's listen to this. But do like I told you to do. Go to your go go to your uh channel on YouTube and go to your subscribers and and look through them. I know you probably got it. Some people got a lot. Some people don't. I think I might have about thirty or forty, maybe, maybe you know, around that around that amount. But uh, I'm gonna clean mine out soon. I really am. I'm gonna clean it out, clean it out, and clean it out good, and put them under a playlist so I can go and check on them like once a week, maybe once every other other week or something like that, maybe once a month to see what they have recorded. Because a lot of mess that's that they get from other people, and put in a in a in a in a video, and that's that's what I call. Uh, I mean, why would you be subscribed to five people showing you the showing you the same thing? You know, and a lot of it, a lot of it is uh, trash. A lot of it is a lot of trash, and they do it for the little change uh, YouTube throw at them. From the monetized commercials, from the commercials and things that's on the video, that's annoying. And if I want Chick Fil A, I eat Chick Fil A, but it's not Chick Fil A commercials. It's it's other commercials and stuff like that that they they are showing and stuff like that. Zazby's and stuff like that. And stuff you know, you could be watching some very interesting and a commercial from Zazby's a uh, 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 pop up, you know. And all that old mess. But let me finish seeing what Freddie Jackson has to say in another episode. And make sure you go and clean your boxes out. As far as your subscriptions out. Uh, clean them up. Clean them up and clean them out. Put them up on the playlist and everything. And you can go check on them, you know, like once a week, once every other week, or once a month. And as you go... You'll be able to go through and say, well, okay, uh, okay, I'm interested in this, I'm interested in that, as opposed to getting a notification for every last one of them. And then you can, can subscribe, but not press the bell. But if you subscribe and don't press the bell, how are you going to know that they, you know, so it's just best to just put them on a playlist. reason why I said put them up on a playlist because they won't get paid if you... Don't subscribe, see. If you subscribe, they get paid. So, I don't know. I don't know. It don't make no sense. It don't make a bit of sense. But uh, let me see what, let me finish trying to hear what they what he's saying. This one right, this one right here, I'm going to put hers in the, in the, um, 
in the in the description. I'm gonna put who who this, where this uh, interview came from. Once I get ten ten listeners, cause I think I just have two right now. This this app right here is not doing its job by advertising the way they said they were gonna advertise. Getting ready to do a show myself and Miss Regina Bell, which is my sweetheart. She's celebrating her birthday. So this is a great time for us to be together. So anytime I get a chance to perform and to make people happy, it's a thrill for me. Okay, and I got two two more questions. Two more, that's extra money. Okay. <laughs> and that's real. Well, no. <laughs> that's real. That's real TV. <laughs> I mean, in the 80s, there were lots of crooners, sweet soul, R&B musicians like yourself, like Jeffrey Osborne. Yeah. Um, that just ruled the roost, and then the '90s hit. I mean, what what do you think happened? It wasn't you, I mean, you were still making plenty of good music. How do you explain? Well, the music industry has changed a lot. The industry is very commercial now. Um, it's not really so much even about sound anymore. It's almost very visual, and it's record companies are making a lot of money off of people who visually look good, as opposed to people who really can who can really carry a tune or have showmanship or personality on stage quality. Years ago, record labels used to have an artist development department. Most labels now don't have a development department because there's that really much to develop uh, when it comes down to, um, I mean, right now it's about more knowing how to dance than it is to sing. Uh, but I come from an era when the voice really was the key factor of getting a deal. I come from the era of walking the streets, the pavement, and going into record labels and meeting people and selling my voice. I didn't come from the era where there were shows called American Idol. Uh, I came, I was my own idol, and I had to really go out. My God, I can only imagine if someone was giving me a million dollars to be a great star back in today, I'd be like, wow, that's how, that's how easy it is. I would definitely be in one of the shows. But I come from the school of hard knocks where you had to really work in order to do your thing. So today the music industry has totally changed, and I'm happy for it. No hating. No hating whatsoever. A lot of there are some wonderful artists like Corinne Bailey Ray right now, which I think is exceptional. I think John Legend is exceptional. I think they're true artists. Alicia Keys is incredible. So there's a lot of good stuff that's going on right now. A lot of, a lot of music got a little sexier than the kind of innuendos of the romantic kind of, you are my lady. Well, um, years ago, um, myself, Luther Vandross, um, Peebo Bryson, um, it was about the the beautiful melodies in music and the lyrics. Uh, right now, it's really not too much to be left to the imagination. Uh, so that sets myself and even Luther's music that is still living in his passing and people writing, that sets us apart because people like to be wooed and romantic. Jeffrey Osborne, can you woo, woo, woo? People like to be romanced uh, in, a, in a subtle way as, as opposed to being rushed to tell somebody that I love you. So then do you think there is a place on the radio for romantic love songs? Oh, there's always going to be a place for a romantic love song. Some of the greatest love songs are still being recorded today, re-recorded today. They're just being recorded by different people. Um, and they're being recorded in, in a different way. To me, Neo, his uh, latest song out right now, to 
me, it's very sexy. I think it's very romantic. It's just being done in a different way. All right, that's your mint. That's your that's your times up. Times up. Times up. I'll be uh uh continuing that interview soon. But right now, uh, that ladies and gentlemen, that was Mister, that was Mister Potato Head. Uh, Freddie Jackson. <laughs> yes, yes, Freddie Jackson was in my studio.